Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Angus Deaton talks about the great escape from poverty. Richard Epstein outlines the classical liberal constitution. Russ Whitehurst discusses preschool policy. Cato's Jim Harper talks about the other surveillance scandal. And John Cochran offers an alternative to Obamacare. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we record this, we are awaiting the president's State of the Union address toward the end of January. But if I had a crystal ball before me, I would suspect that the president would like to spend more money now uh, in hopes of saving money later. So uh, to talk about entitlements, uh, some of the biggest spending uh, that the federal government engages in, we're going to talk to Jagadish Gokhale, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Michael Tanner, also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Glad to be here. Pleasure as always. So uh, just to get started here, uh, let's get a picture of what uh, entitlements and the war on poverty programs look like uh, at the the federal level. What are we spending? Well, we are spending billions of dollars, in fact, more than a trillion dollars on all of these programs. I know Social Security takes up uh, over $800 billion every year. Uh, healthcare is not quite as much, but it's growing much more rapidly. And the welfare program, I think the basic issue is that rising spending because of the aging of the baby boomers, rising healthcare costs, and now on top of that, Obamacare subsidies are going to crowd out a lot of government spending on other programs. The government's not going to be able to... Uh, have resources to respond to unexpected events. The CBO has painted a very stark picture of what the future holds. And I think um, its bottom line, which I was loath to use CBO numbers earlier because they did not report them any in a way that is conducive to really bringing out this message. But of late, the situation, the fiscal picture has worsened so much that it's fine for me to use CBO numbers. In fact, they suggest that over the next uh, 25 years, um, federal deficits will worsen as a result of these uh, factors. And we are going to see 100 plus percent of GDP as federal debt. And we often sort of confuse entitlements with welfare spending. Uh, There's some overlap, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Entitlement spending is essentially mandatory spending. It's spending that's not subject to annual appropriation uh, I know a lot of seniors object to example for calling Medicare and Social Security entitlements because they say, well, they're not welfare programs. We paid into them and so on. But entitlement is a legal term. Uh, welfare programs, by and large, many of them are not entitlements. Uh, TANF, the cash grant program, for example, is no longer an, enti- an entitlement because it is subject to appropriation every year. That said, uh, we do spend a lot on welfare programs. There's 126 separate federal anti-poverty programs. We spend about $700 billion every year at the federal level on them. That doesn't count another $300 billion or so that the state and local governments kick in. So we're spending a great deal on welfare programs as, and, of course, even more, as Jagadish noted, on entitlements. Uh, that's essentially where money goes. It doesn't go to infrastructure or investment. Uh, the president always likes to talk about we need to invest in government, but a very tiny portion of federal spending is anything that can even be remotely called an investment. All right. So uh, adding to what you said, Medicare, 
900-plus billion dollars a year and Medicaid at the federal level? What about is that? About the same. About the same. $850 billion a year. Okay, and if I understand correctly, Medicare as a program is has promised 30-plus trillion dollars, more than it expects to pay out in the next seven decades? Well, the overall shortfall uh, over 75 um, uh, years into the future uh, is 50 trillion plus on account of uh, the entire federal budget that we don't have money for under current law. So current laws are not, that's clearly, uh, the implication is that current laws are not sustainable and we have to do something in order to balance the government's books going forward. There are very few choices. In fact, only two basic choices, either action on revenues or action on spending, both of which are really difficult to do. And it may well be that uh, health care costs, uh, the big programs, Medicare and Medicaid, are even more expensive than, than predicted. Right now, we're in a period in which health care costs have slowed, or at least the growth in health care costs has slowed. Uh, nobody really knows why. Uh, some of it may have to do with the, the recession we've just gone through, but it appears to have started before and is outlasting that. Uh, but nobody knows whether that's going to stay the case. Uh, if we return to anything like historical levels of health care inflation, things get much worse. All right. So what, what are some big reforms? Uh, you say that the, the choices, uh, Jagadish, you say the choices are essentially between action on spending or action on revenue. Uh, and nobody, both of them are bad. Both of them are bad. Uh, what, is the, what is the less bad option and, and how would you structure this? Well, a lot of people think that the less bad option would be some structural changes that would increase the rate at which the economy is growing, which will increase the pie that's available to distribute uh, to various uh, interest groups and uh, constituencies that are essentially trying now to defend uh, their entitlements and uh, uh, avoid having uh, to pay more taxes. So... Uh, going forward, this uh, conflict is going to only intensify, and the only way to stop uh, or make it less intense would be if we adopted structural policies that would uh, increase our rate of growth. One of the ways to do that is not to just depend on simple uh, uh, protections for the vulnerable uh, uh, by giving money out. I think most of these so-called safety net programs need to be tied to some productive activity that people engage in. So you have to structure social safety nets and support programs that would be uh, conducive to people or provide incentives to people to engage in labor force activity or productive activity. So you're talking about like a, a negative income tax, something like that? That's one of the successful programs, and I think a similar approach could be used for many of the other support programs. I, in fact, have a proposal out to uh, reform the way we uh, provide disability insurance in a way that would uh, induce more of the disability beneficiaries to seek uh, labor force attachments. Well, we do know that the incentives in the current programs are almost always anti-work. Uh, the fact is that in terms of straight social welfare programs, the anti-poverty programs, uh, people who collect the, the full range of social welfare benefits can earn far more than the, from the welfare programs than they can from an entry-level job, which discourages them from moving into the labor force. We know that both Social Security and Medicare encourage people to delay retirement, or I'm sorry, to, to retire earlier 
thereby getting out of the labor force, uh, in some cases in the most productive years. Uh, there's some, some excellent work been done showing the loss to the economy because people retire at their, at their greatest productivity. So all of these programs sort of encourage people to move out of welfare or out of the workforce onto some sort of dole uh, at a time when we should be encouraging people to get back into the workforce in part because because we have a declining labor supply. We need more workers. Minimum wage is going to be a big political issue in the coming year. Uh, Democrats, broadly speaking, are pushing this as a reform of sorts. What do you make of it? Well, no doubt that it's politically popular, but as a matter of economics, uh, it's much more problematic. Uh, first of all, even if the minimum wage were increased, it would have little impact on poverty. The, the suggestion is that uh, fewer than 11 percent, I believe it is, of people who would be affected by an increase in the minimum wage actually live below the poverty level right now. Uh, it, only about 5 percent of people earning minimum wage are adults with children. Uh, you're scooping up a whole bunch of second earners and third earners, college kids, people like that, in order to deal with a problem, theoretically, of inequality and poverty. And the other hand side of it is, of course, if you increase the cost of labor, you discourage uh, hiring. And uh, economists argue about how much uh, of an impact it would have on hiring, but certainly I think that the vast majority of economists would agree that it does discourage uh, job creation. Well, it discourages job creation directly and also indirectly. In the long term, if you make hiring workers for specific, specific jobs more expensive, employers are going to be incentivized to substitute other uh, uh, factors of production to do those jobs, which means it's going to uh, negatively impact demand for workers in the future. So in the long term, you're making uh, uh, it even more difficult to provide uh, the support that this thing is intended to provide for low-income workers. The minimum wage is just another example of the magic money formula of government, that somehow money materializes out of nothing, and there's no cost to getting that money, that you can just make companies pay people more, or you can create more taxes, or you can borrow more money, and none of that has an impact anywhere. It's just the spending that's good. Now, one argument that I, I read, and we're going back to uh, the war on poverty and the programs associated with it, is that those programs, broadly speaking, worked, that they uh, effectively have lowered what the poverty rate uh, below what it otherwise would have been, and the conservative and libertarian uh, attacks on these programs are, are not rooted in reality. Well, if you use the standard poverty measures, there's been very little change in poverty. It went down from about 19 percent in uh, 1965 when the war on poverty started to around 15 percent today. Child poverty has only dropped from 23 to 22 percent, which is hardly any impact at all. There is now a movement to look at alternative poverty measures and sort of reverse engineer those numbers and suggest that poverty was much higher in 1965 than previously measured. And therefore, even if we're still at 15 percent now, it, it, it's, a, it's a significant improvement. Uh, that's an interesting approach. Uh, I think there still needs to be a lot more research done on that. But one thing we've seen is that almost all of that increase comes from the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit and the lowering of the uh, the bottom tax rate from 15 percent to 10 percent uh, under the Bush administration. These are Reagan and uh, era proposals or further or more recent, not part of the war on poverty. They, those programs seem to have done very little. And those are, as you point out, the earned income tax credit, that is associated with filing a tax return. So that is associated with- It's a form of negative income tax in, in a way. It's what Jagadish was talking about. Well, if you actually measure the overall uh, degree of progressivity of the tax system, you find that 
you have to take into account not just the tax side of it, but also the spending, which is the welfare provision, and the withdrawal of that provision as incomes rise to measure how progressive our tax system is. So if you do that exercise, you find that the highest degree of progressivity of the tax system is at the lowest income range, which means all of these programs that provide subsidies and welfare benefits and uh, support to people earning at low levels act as a trap to keep them in poverty. So this is another reason we hear a lot of talk about the hollowing out of the middle class. So people at the, uh, in, in the middle class who work and earn and are not subject to these high tax rates at the margin are successfully moving out of the middle class and are moving up the income scale, whereas a lot of people are tra- uh, at the low end are trapped because of the tri- type of fiscal programs we have, which is the reason for the hollowing out of the middle class. So the, much of the reason we hear the talk today of the middle class is being clobbered and it's disappearing is because of the type of incentives we provide uh, at the low end uh, to not rise up the in- income scale because they essentially, as Mike has documented very well in his uh, latest paper, uh, uh, serves as a trap to, to keep them uh, at the low end. The Congressional Budget Office has to, uh, did a study, at least in Pennsylvania, and suggested that people moving out of the welfare, trying to trying to work, can face as much as a 95% marginal tax rate, which is certainly discouraging to, to the work ethic. So to bring the, the argument back full circle is essentially, if you want to engage in some structural reforms to modify or rectify the situation, we need to associate support systems with labor force participation and work. Just building on that, we know, for example, that only 3%, or less than 3%, actually, of people who work full-time live in poverty. Uh, Even part-time work, it's about 15% of part-time workers live in poverty, compared to about double that for people without a job. Uh, I mean, essentially, we have a pretty good idea of how to get out of poverty. It's finish school, don't get pregnant if you're not married, and, and most importantly of all, work. Uh, and, and yet my policies seem bizarrely anti-job. Yeah, in fact, historically, uh, we know, we also hear that immigrants have done really well coming into this country, and the way they've done really well is to engage in the workforce and work hard. And that's the engaging in the workforce, holding on to a job, is the most direct and most effective way of ensuring that you don't end up poor. Now, uh, with respect to the long-term programs like uh, Medicare and Social Security, you've done a lot of work, uh, Jagadish, on the demographic shifts that are occurring in the populations that are uh, consuming those those programs. It seems like it is a decades-long process to get us out of the problems uh, that we have. So how do we get more people in the workforce at the same time uh, dealing with this long-term crushing obligation that Social Security and Medicare represent? I mean, we have to have basically comprehensive tax reform to deal with the welfare side as well as the tax side. And in terms of these health care and social social entitlement programs, I think the incentives that they create through the benefit side of, as Mike mentioned again, uh, of uh, inducing people to retire early, we have a massive cohort of baby boomers who are aging, who are now approaching and, in fact, are already beginning to retire, uh, they are the most experienced segment of the workforce right now. If we do not change the incentives for them to remain in the workforce, uh, then we are going to lose a lot of experience. Already, a lot of government agencies are complaining that the the human capital 
is being lost because of these retirements at the, the senior uh, management and senior employee level. And replacing those skills is going to be very difficult unless we can change the incentives these people face to exit the workforce. We, we have one of the lowest labor force participation rates uh, in history, and, and about two-thirds of that decline is due to the baby boomers retiring, uh, which we're just talking about now, the need to postpone that. That is a long-term trend, right? It's a long-term, long-term trend, and it's, and it's growing worse because we're aging as a population, and our incentives are for people to retire regardless of the fact that they're going to spend a lot longer in retirement than ever before. And part of it is discourage people dropping out of the labor force because we're not creating the jobs. Uh, and part of it is because we, we don't haven't kept up with the immigration rates, which tended to replace people. So all of, all of those reasons is that we're having a lower number of people in the economy. Less workers means less GDP growth in the long run as well. It's just, just a smaller economy. We, we can't afford that. Now, with respect to uh, welfare programs, uh, we'll include Medicaid in the, in the trillion or so dollars that are spent at the federal and state level, you talked about 126 programs that exist at the federal level. What is the solution there? Just a wholesale uh, devolution of that to states? Well, I, I think we need to be consolidating that uh, certainly down into a single programs or a much smaller number of programs, perhaps in terms of a negative income tax or a single cash grant program, which is what Britain, for example, is doing now, consolidating its multiple welfare programs into a single program and turning it into a cash grant program. Or if you want to, or even better would be get it out of the federal government and turn it back to the states in terms of a single single amount of money that they can then experiment with. But we shouldn't be have nine cabinet departments and six independent agencies all managing different welfare programs. And, and not to be lost in all of this is the actual impact of the people who are on the people who are collecting these benefits. It seems like probably an enormous uh, exercise of energy to be in compliance to maintain collection of these benefits. Well, it's also dehumanizing. We tend to treat poor people like they're our pets. We throw them a few scraps and rub their belly, and we expect them to be happy. The reality is, of course, uh, the, the successful life, uh, the fully actualized life, is based on working and achieving everything that you can be and rising as far as your talents and abilities can take you. And we strip that away from people on the dole. Uh, again, it's about getting them in the labor force, getting them a job so that they can rise. All right, we're going to leave it there. Jagadish Gokhale and Michael Tanner, senior fellows at the Cato Institute. You can read more of uh, Cato's work on entitlements, welfare programs, and the welfare state more broadly at Cato.org. In his latest book, Richard Epstein mounts a principled attack on modern Supreme Court jurisprudence and much of the legal scholarship that has grown up around it. His new book, The Classical Liberal Constitution, The Uncertain Quest for Limited Government, argues that the major disarray that infects every area of modern American life could not have happened under the original constitutional structure. He spoke at the Cato Institute in December. Uh, so most of what I'm going to talk about today are canons of constitutional interpretation, which are meant to be in many ways as critical of many originalists like Justice Scalia, as they are of many progressives. Uh, but before I do that, I think it's probably appropriate for you, for me to set the book in context. Um, I have written this book, I guess, over a period of about seven or eight years, constantly get interrupted by other projects. But it is a kind of a lifetime summation. And you might want to think of it as an effort to define 
and to identify a third way of American constitutionalism that gets you out of the hands of the conservatives on the one hand and the progressives on the other. And the basic argument that I make with respect to this book is that both sides of that particular debate are in many ways misguided. Let me just start with a very short critique of what I regard as wrong with progressives with respect to one of the elements which is very powerful in intellectual circles. And that's the question of what is the status of the doctrine of judicial restraint. And there is no question, in effect, that modern constitutional law in the last, say, 50 or 60 years has been completely obsessed with the question, what is the standard of review? What is the attitude? What are the set of institutional arrangements which should govern the way in which judges behave? Uh, the 19th century strategy was rather different. You looked at a text, and you try to figure out what it meant, and then you applied it one way or the other. Modern people engage in this extensive preliminary self-psychosis and analysis, and what they come up with is the notion that they ought to be very careful before they interfere with the operation of the political branches of government. And there are two difficulties, I think, with this particular position. Um, one of them, there's absolutely no textual warrant in many cases for adopting a position of judicial restraint. Um, if you wish to be accurate with respect to original intention and with textual design, if there are broad protections that are inserted into a constitution, then there is an obligation to breed them broadly. And so if you have a clause which says, uh, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, it doesn't mean some kinds of public property, it doesn't mean possession. It means the full range of private property institutions as they've developed at common law and by the statutes which are designed to supplement and to expand its operation, like recordation statutes on the one hand and the statute of frauds on the other. If there's a provision which starts to deal with the protection of freedom of speech, you can't talk about just speech. You also have to talk about freedom. And it turns out there is no one-sentence version of what we mean to freedom. It's a rather elaborate theory which tries to constantly talk about the uh, need for individual autonomy on the one hand and the need to prevent one individual from trespassing on the like liberties of others as a second part to this particular theory. So in my view, if the moment you start to end into a situation of judicial restraint, uh, you are not faithful to constitutional text, you are not faithful to constitutional meaning. Uh, the causes of this, of course, are very great. Um, if one looks around and tries to figure out what is wrong with respect to governments over the world, you come to the very melancholy conclusion that by and large they are failed experiments. In some cases, like with Russia, they are failed experiments which continue to repeat each other at an alarming rate. And the question is, what is the source of that? And well, it turns out to be the dominance of the legislative and the executive branches. It turns out to be the fact that any rule of law that they promulgate um, will be binding on the individuals whom they wish to oppress, but any law which is designed to limit their behavior is hopelessly ambiguous and therefore should be given whatever favorable interpretation an ingenious court can be able to identify in the particular case. Uh, so what happens in effect with the judicial restraint situation is that in the effort to stop judicial abuse on the one hand, you open the way up to congressional and executive power abuse on the other. And the art of government is not one that shuts down all abuse. You can never do that with a set of institutions so complicated. But you're trying to figure out how you limit the sum of the abuses of three branches of government. And you do not do that by saying, in effect, uh, that the court should stand aside on major constitutional issues and that the legislature and the executive should, in fact, have full branch. Uh, to give some explanation as to why it is that this theory actually works when you start to apply it, 
uh, what I would like to do is to point to a couple of areas in which classical liberal principles have uh, had fairly powerful influence, and then ask yourself whether or not you think that they have had baleful social consequences. One of them is, with the exception of recent stuff on campaign financing, all of the material with respect to freedom of speech is in fact organized along classical liberal lines. We have broad definitions as to what count as speech, including other forms of aggression, rather of expression, not aggression. We have justifications that can limit speech based upon force and fraud. We have fairly sharp limitations on the kind of remedies that could be imposed. Uh, then when you look at something like the Dormant Commerce Clause, even people like Justice Stevens are extremely astute in the way in which they examine taxation and regulation to make sure that they do not deviate from the requirements that are needed in order to shore open competition across state law. And so the Justice Jackson, who gave us Wicked and Filburn, also gave us um, some other cases, um, Hood against Lamont, for example, in which he essentially defends free competition across state lines. And that jurisdiction and that jurisprudence turns out to be perfectly sustainable over the long haul. And it remedies, ironically, one of the defects in the original Constitution, and namely the fact that we did not have any strong limitations in the federal government that could prevent state aggrandizement, of, of state aggrandizement through protectionism um, and uh, various interference with interstate travel and communications and the like. So you have all of these things going on simultaneously. So I think, in effect, to some extent, uh, that the judicial restraint model uh, does not and should not be given the kind of paramount respect that it often happens. Now, when you go to the other side, we take into account the progressives. They have a view which, in many ways, overlaps that associated with conservative judges. Uh, the progressives also believe uh, that the courts ought not to interfere with respect to the general regulation of the economic system of the United States, although in many cases they will, sometimes right and sometimes wrong, protect various forms of individual liberties against government oversight and control. But the difference between them and the judicial restraint types is that most conservative judges support legislation they don't like, whereas most progressive judges support legislation that they do like. And the question is, well, why do they do this? And well, essentially, they believe that the definition of a market failure, in many cases, is a competitive market. They regard that these things, in fact, create inequality of bargaining power, that they result in massive inequalities of wealth. But what they forget in all of these cases is that the presumption with respect to any voluntary contract is that it produces gains between the parties. Uh, the more rapid you could get these transactions going forward, the larger the sum of the games will be, and that the need to worry about contracts contracts is largely confined to antitrust type risks on the one hand and conspiracy risks to commit violence and fraud and other kinds of things. So the progressives essentially developed a series of strongly anti-competitive institutions through the 1930s, the Motor Vehicle Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Civil Aeronautics Act, the National Labor Relations Act, and so the list goes on. And each and every one of these, it turns out, has sapped the strength of the American country, American Republic, and has made it more difficult for us to grow the nation in a way that solves huge numbers of problems. Make no mistake about it, when there is a political decline and an economic shrinkage, what you do is you get more ugliness and more factional behavior than you do if you can consistently expand an economy. And the progressives have lost sight of that particular lesson, and so what they do is they insist that the Constitution 
ought to evolve and become living, and that all of the changed social circumstances, in fact, require that there be greater government intervention, when in fact the exact opposite conclusion is true. The more efficient markets are at a different, at a distance, the more likely it is that you could get yourself into competitive equilibrium, the less case there is for balkanization and special interest legislation to be done at either the federal or the state level. In a process that began some 250 years ago, most of humanity has managed a great escape from grinding poverty and early death that characterized its existence for thousands of years. Professor Angus Deaton has studied this rise extensively for his new book, The Great Escape, Health, Wealth, and the Origins of Inequality. He spoke at the Cato Institute in December. Um, the, the Great Escape in the title of my book um, and it, it's a little hard to tell from this audience, but it's the, the running metaphor is with the Steve McQueen movie um, called The Great Escape. Um, usually I get a ripple of recognition from the older people uh, in the audience here. Um, the younger ones are too young. I, one of my students at Princeton said she took a boy home and told her dad that she wanted to marry him. And her dad would not let her marry him until he'd seen The Greatest Game. <laughs> such a sort of cult thing. But for those of you who haven't seen it, this is a movie about, based on a true story um, of um, the escape from a German prisoner war camp in World War II, um, where they dug tunnels out underneath the camp. And um, about 200 people escaped through these tunnels um, and then went off. Um, to try and make it um, home. I may come back to that, what happened to them later. Um, the, of course, this escape didn't leave, didn't take everybody, and so this escape left a lot of people behind and created a lot of inequality, and that's one of the things I'm gonna talk about here. So these greatest episodes of human progress are what I call the great escape. And in the most obvious dimensions, these are from destitution, material destitution, from ill health, from premature mortality, to the long life and high material living standards that most of us enjoy um, today. Um, the book is mostly about health and wealth, um, but I, I didn't want to <coughs> go past this without noting that there are many other things that are much better in the world that I don't deal with at great length, but are very, very important. Um, there are more people living under democracy today than has been true for a very, very long time, indeed, ever. Um, there are huge, large-scale reductions in violence um, around the world over the centuries, which contribute enormously to human well-being. There are huge increases in education, um, particularly but not exclusively among girls. Um, in one of the areas I work in, Rajasthan in northwest um, India, and when we do household surveys and you interview the adult women, none of them have ever been to school and none of them can read and write. Um, and yet if you look out of the window, um, you see lines of little girls um, going to schools. Um, the schools they're going to leave a lot to be desired, um, but at least it's a start and it's something that's really quite, quite new. Um, it's also um, contested, but I would believe and argue that increases in life evaluation have also accompanied this, that people know their lives are better and will report and tell you that their lives are better. So now what I want to do is get on to the global inequalities and 
foreign aid and why I don't think it's working. Most of the differences in health around the world are explained by infant and child mortality rates. I mean, it's true in Africa that adult mortality rates are higher than they are here, but that's not the big difference. The big difference is your chance of making it to five years old is much less in Africa or India than it is here. Um, though again, to reinforce what Ian said, and I have a lot of fun with this in the book, um, the infant mortality rate in India today is considerably lower than it was in Edinburgh in the year in which I was born. Um, so it gives you a good example of just how much progress there has been. Um, <clears throat> these children are dying not from weird tropical diseases for which we have no cure. They're dying from things that we've known how to fix for 100 years. Um, or maybe a little less, but they're dying from not being vaccinated, they're dying from drinking dirty water, they're dying from not having antibiotics when they have a respiratory infection, and so on. In many cases, they're dying within sight of um, modern hospitals that have fully Western standards. In the country I know best, in the poor world, India, half of all children are severely malnourished. There are at least two standard deviations off their growth charts. They're too skinny and they're not tall enough. Um, and that's in spite of the fact that India is no longer classified as a poor country um, by the World Bank. It's a middle income country. Um, it's not middle income for everyone. As people like Peter Singer, my colleague Peter Singer, who I debate these things with all the time, or Jeff Sachs will tell you, the cost of fixing these things is not very large. You know, if we were to bring these kids here and say, how much does it give them to give their shots? You're talking about pennies. And even if you multiply it by a billion people, you're talking about dollars, but not big dollars compared with the things that governments spend money on. Um, I think, along with Peter Singer and Jeff Sachs, that there really is a clear ethical obligation to assist if we can. So what I'm worried about here is not the main ethical obligation. What I'm worried about is unintended consequences. Um, to me, what is missing in these countries is not, it's not money that's missing. These problems cannot be solved easily by more money. And to me, this is like a confusion between necessity and sufficiency in the mathematical sense. It's clear, and you know, Jeff Sachs often likes to say this, you could not have a better health system in many African countries or indeed in India um, without more money. You know, it's just not possible. They're not spending hardly any money. And if you had a better health system, it would cost more money. On the other hand, if you put more money into the health system that's there now, it's not going to help things because the government is not capable of delivering health care and it's not capable of regulating the private sector in delivering health care either. So you just get bad stuff all the way around. It's the lack of state capacity um, that seems to be the problem here. Now, we like to complain a lot about our government. And, you know, we had a partial shutdown here not very long ago. But I want you to imagine what it would be like if we had a total government shutdown. Now, some people might like that, but I think it would be sort of hard. And not just the federal government, but the state governments and the local governments, and all the functions of government suddenly went away. That would be like waking up in the Central African Republic. You know, I mean, all of these things that we make our lives livable, and some of them we don't need, some of them we do. Um, but we need 
these collective goods, most of which we would not be capable of providing for ourselves. So there's a contract out there, which is a contested contest contract all the time. Um, it's, that's what democracy is about. It's what the press is about. It's what media is about. But, you know, we mostly pay our taxes, and in return, we get a whole bunch of stuff. And there's a list of some of the things here. You know, laws, police, health and pensions, education, regulation, research, etc. And, you know, you could argue about which of those are essential and which are not, but it's a lot of stuff. And without any of that, we would find it almost impossible. And to me, it's the lack of this sort of contract that is characteristic of poor countries. And to me, the disaster of aid is that it makes it impossible for these contracts to come about, and it undermines these contracts. If the government of some country is getting all of its revenue from international aid agencies, and you're going to say, well, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. There are countries all over Africa where 100% of government revenue is coming from international aid. Why would these governments pay any attention whatsoever to the needs of their own citizens? And they just won't. Um, and so effectively, you get a situation in which the government and the aid agencies are joint, have taken their own population as hostages in order to make them both feel better off. And that, to me, is just a disaster. That's the true reason why, to me, um, why it doesn't work. With American education seemingly stuck in neutral, no matter what reforms we try, policymakers are looking to younger children to improve achievement. Indeed, touting the benefits of high-quality programs, President Obama has proposed spending $75 billion to expand preschool to all four-year-olds. But on what research basis does the argument for expanding early childhood education rest? Russ Whitehurst is director of the Brown Center on Education Policy at the Brookings Institution. He spoke at the Cato Institute in January. In the early 90s, uh, uh, I was spending a lot of time trying to develop uh, uh, programs and interventions to make preschool uh, a better experience. And, uh, one day I was out at the Bellport Head Start Center. I was uh, going to make a spiel to, uh, to parents at the beginning of the year to sign so that they would sign the permission form to be in the studies that we were doing. And uh, not many parents uh, showed up. I noticed a young uh, mother. She was, uh, I saw her walking in with two kids, and uh, she was there for my presentation. The kids were off uh, being cared for while the parents uh, had a chance to hear about the upcoming year. And when I finished up and was leaving, she was leaving too, I saw that she had her four-year-old by the hand and what I think was probably an 18-month-old in a stroller, and she was heading down the road. It was hot, and I stopped and asked her if she needed a ride home, and she accepted it, and I thought I was taking her a couple of blocks. It turned out that she lived two miles away. She'd walk there with the two kids. I dropped her off at what I think was probably a crack house. And I said, you obviously made a tremendous effort to, to be here this evening. Uh, uh, what's up? And she said, uh, I just want to do what's best for my babies. And for me, that's been a, a, a touchstone uh, ever since. I'm in favor of government investment in pre-K services for 
families like that and kids like that. I think they need it. For me, the question is, how are we going to make an investment that really works rather than investment that simply makes us feel good? And my reading of, of the literature is different from Deborah's and different from, from the panel's consensus. I think it's very hard to design a pre-K program for four-year-olds that produces sustained effects. And let me give you examples of research that support my pessimism about the ability to do that based on what we presently know. First, I'll start with the very research I was trying to get uh, the mom who I was just describing to sign the permission form to be a part of. So what I and my colleagues did for a number of years is we developed shared book reading interventions in pre-K. It's an approach called dialogic reading. It involves uh, uh, switching the usual story circle where the adult holds a book and reads it to the child to an interactive process where children are talking about the book, learning vocabulary. And it's been a very effective intervention. We had demonstrated, uh, we demonstrated our own research team that it works, it raises vocabulary substantially, and it's been replicated by others. Uh, we did longitudinal research in which we followed various cohorts who were experimentally assigned to receive the intervention or not into elementary school. And what we found uh, to our disappointment is that the effects were sustained through kindergarten, but by the time the kids got to first or second grade, there was no difference between children who'd been exposed as intervention in Head Start and those who had not. The fade out issue that, that Deborah described. When I first came to uh, the U.S. Department of Education uh, to lead the Institute of Education Sciences, uh, one of my uh, uh, big bets was on uh, something called the Preschool Education, uh, Curriculum Education Research Project. Uh, the federal government uh, funded 14 randomized trials around the country. Uh, it was competitive, so the people who got the money to put the, the interventions in place and to evaluate them uh, presented uh, positive evidence that what they were going to do worked that would improve uh, pre-K programs. So 14 interventions, 14 uh, new, powerful, presumably powerful curriculum uh, interventions, again, random assignment. Only one of the 14 produced an effect that lasted through the end of kindergarten. 10 of the 14 produced no measurable in impact on any of the 20 outcome measures that were employed at either the pre-K year or the kindergarten year. And yet, I certainly went into this with high hopes that we'd get uh, large impacts. I was talking about, well, we'll get a list here of things that work and don't work, and states can, if they're smart, choose off the list of effective programs. Well, again, uh, disappointing. One that worked for a little while, and uh, most produced no impact at all. Even Start is a, was a federal program now canceled, uh, in part because of evaluation findings. It was a family intervention give the parents job training, uh, you give the kids high quality pre-K. Uh, two randomized trials, uh, both showing no impact on either parents or kids of the intervention. Uh, and there was no need to do a follow-up because there was no impact at the end of the pre-K uh, pre year. Thinking that there was something wrong with even start, we invested in uh, uh, 
an enhancement program for Even Start that put two uh, seemingly very strong uh, literacy curriculum in Even Start. Again, random assignment, uh, no impact. Early Reading First was another federal effort while I was in the U.S. Department of Education to try to improve uh, pre-K uh, programs. This one used a regression discontinuity design comparing uh, applicants who got the money and those who just missed the cutoff point so they didn't get the money. Uh, very small impacts on just one outcome measure. You've heard from Professor Armour about the National Head Start Impact Study. It's the largest uh, best piece of social science we have on a large-scale uh, preschool intervention, uh, good impacts at the end of the Head Start year, uh, no sustained uh, impacts. Uh, and uh, a couple of, couple of presenters have mentioned Tennessee's voluntary pre-K program. Again, impacts at the end of the pre-K year, random assignment, no impacts at the end of, uh, at the end of first grade. So you look at this, and I'm focusing on on the best design research, research in which random assignment is, is employed. And I don't see how you come away with it thinking we know what to do. I come away with it thinking I wish we knew what to do. Americans have been rightly stunned by revelations that the National Security Agency is collecting vast troves of information about ordinary citizens, but that's only part of the story. State and local police have formed data fusion centers across the country and partnered with the federal intelligence community to share a wide array of personal information in an effort to detect and prevent terrorism. New research, however, finds that this system of data gathering and sharing produces mountains of data with little or no counterterrorism value. Jim Harper, director of information policy studies at the Cato Institute, discussed the issue last month. Uh, it's good to focus somewhat on states and localities at this time because uh, people shouldn't be deceived into thinking that the NSA and the, the leaks of Edward Snowden are the only game in town. Uh, we have been uh, seeing this kind of thing develop over the last decade, over the last dozen years. A way I like to talk about it is that after 911, a thousand ships sailed, a thousand security ships sailed, and many of them don't have a destination. Uh, I think it's time to, to call fusion centers and call joint terrorism task forces back into port, decommission them, and focus on things that actually demonstrably work. As you can tell, I'm a little less managerial and a little more libertarian red meat than my colleagues who've spoken up to this point. The, the report's an excellent read and obviously uh, shows a, a, a great deal of attention and care and I was uh, particularly interested in, in the discussion of intelligence-led policing to look for examples of how joint terrorism task force and fusion centers uh, are actually intelligent. Didn't, didn't find much, didn't find how, how they are actually intelligence organizations, but rather sort of um, careless and sloppy data collection uh, organizations that, that uh, I think with great, taking, taking great pains to, to help in the counterterrorism effort aren't really doing very much. Um, that's, that's actually because of some good news. There's very, very little terrorism to confront in the United States. Um, so, so these ships don't really have a destination. The, the report, 
I think raises, in a managerial context, raises some very important issues that are, I think, very good to think about, including what is suspicion? What kinds of things are, are the subject of reasonable suspicion? I come to these issues from a constitutional perspective, um, though I work in, in the technology area as well. And I, in, a, in a paper on data mining um, some years back, wrote a little bit about uh, uh, the, the Terry versus Ohio case and how you might uh, try to generate suspicion, as articulated by the court in that case, in a, in a sort of data context. And, and you start to think about what went on in that case. So I'll, I'll go into the case just a little bit because it's worth understanding. Um, Officer McFadden was patrolling, patrolling the streets and he saw a guy acting suspiciously. Now that's a conclusion. What he saw was a guy walking back and forth in front of a store, looking in, leaving again, coming back by, looking in, uh, talking to a few other, other fellas, going back, looking at the store again, leaving again, several times. And, and later, a few blocks away, having generated suspicion, he, he took a hold of Terry, turned him around, patted him down, and found a gun. Uh, the court validated that uh, seizure and that search by saying that, that Officer McFadden had reasonable suspicion based on articulable fact. This phrase is hammered into your head in law school in your criminal procedure class. Reasonable, reasonable suspicion based on articulable fact. Uh, try to make that into some kind of algorithm or move it closer to a sort of algorithmic, logical way of looking at, at facts. And, and I, I started to think of it as information that is consistent with wrongdoing but inconsistent with lawful behavior. It has to be both. If, if, if you're a fan of Supreme Court decisions, you'd say that Justice Harper has offered a two-pronged test. Incon consistent with wrongdoing, inconsistent with right-doing or lawful behavior. Uh, most attempts at suspicion succeed on the first part and fail on the second part. So the classic example is, the, is photography. Oh, I saw some people taking photographs of monuments down on the mall. They must be planning to destroy them. Well, yes, uh, <laughs> taking photographs of things can be part of a plan to destroy them. But taking photographs of things can also be part of a plan to tour the Washington, D.C. area with your children. So it fails the second prong of that test. And you see again and again where people uh, who I don't doubt, I don't doubt the, the good faith, um, just fail to consider the entire spectrum of, of, of rationality, fail to, fail to consider what, uh, what produces real suspicion. You have to not only see something that's, that, that is consistent with illegality, but must, it must be not consistent with legality. Uh, that's, that's, uh, there, there's some wiggle room in there, and maybe perhaps adding more facts uh, fulfills that test. Uh, to me, all this, all this discussion sort of harkens to the, um, the artificiality of suspicious activity reporting. And I think the probable uh, inutility of suspicious activity reporting overall. Uh, suspicious activity reporting has a long history. It actually um, starts with the Bank Secrecy Act, which was passed in the early 1970s and implemented uh, ever since then, requiring to d still today uh, financial services providers of all stripes, and many that you wouldn't even imagine are, consider, are truly financial services providers, to report suspicious activity, as well as to report transactions of over $10,000. Uh, 
It's, it's like formalized financial see something, say something. <laughs> and while it would be wonderful to, to take uh, organic human processes and formalize them and, make, and get a lot more so that we're more secure, I don't think it works. And the suspicious activity reports in the financial area uh, number into the millions and rarely, if ever, result in any information, any actionable inf information. Uh, somewhat uh, painfully, well, I'll report to you that, that um, there, was a, there was a Treasury Department Bank Secrecy Act report that brought secrecy, uh, uh, rather, that brought suspicious activity reporting into question. It said, given the millions of dollars spent by financial services providers on suspicious activity reporting, given the millions of dollars we spend collecting and and analyzing suspicious activity reports, we're not seeing a lot of law enforcement bang for the buck. Uh, prosecutions uh, uh, are costing, uh, per, per prosecution, 10, 15 million dollars on suspicious activity reporting just to get to a prosecution. That's not cost-effective police work. And the society would be better off not spending 15 million dollars just to arrive at a single prosecution, even allowing uh, some crime to go forward. If it, if it costs less than 15 million dollars to the society, I think that's fairly obvious. The report was issued, if I recall correctly, during the first week of September 2001. Uh, since then, obviously, suspicious activity reporting has expanded quite dramatically, as well as know your customer rules and everything else in the financial services area. So a dozen years later, we still have suspicious activity reporting. We're getting underway uh, to actually probably uh, curtail or, or ideally even do away with suspicious activity reporting. Uh, true suspicious activity reporting is an organic process. It's an organic process that, that occurs when somebody knows a lot about something and find something that stands out uh, as, as, as unusual. Uh, Bruce Schneier, the, the uh, cryptographer and computer security guru whose work, uh, whose work extrapolates so well into security generally, talks about people discovering things that are hinky. The word he uses is hinky, and I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty <clears throat> good one. So when the, the New Year's Eve bombing plot was broken up by a, a, a border agent uh, in Washington state, it's because she had a lot of experience seeing people come off the, the, the ferry and, and drive their cars off the ferry. She'd seen it hundreds, thousands of times over her career there. And she recognized that this person was acting differently enough from all the others. Even the people who were under stress one day, even the people who you know, had car trouble or whatever it might be, this one stood out. So she asked him a couple of questions and, and turned up what, what ended up being the New Year's Eve bomb plot. Can you institutionalize that? Can you make that happen three times a week? You absolutely cannot because of the lack of attackers, for one, but also because you need to rely on these organic processes. The disaster that is Obamacare continues to unfurl, and it's time to consider alternatives. John Cochran, professor of finance at the University of Chicago, has one alternative which he discussed at a December Cato Institute event in Chicago. Uh, the Obamacare unraveling presents a historic opportunity. Uh, its proponents call it a settled law, but let's remember prohibition. Even a constitutional amendment isn't a settled law if it's dysfunctional enough. It's a great thing about this country that nothing's ever really settled. But we cannot get rid of it until our political and intellectual representatives 
are willing to stand up and outline a viable alternative, and not just at Cato conferences, <laughs> where we do this all the time. Uh, repeal and return to the status quo is not a viable position. Uh, Obamacare was motivated by genuine concerns with the pre-existing conditions, uh, e even though most of those were caused by previous regulations. Uh, nonetheless, just go back there is, is not good enough. Obama's right to challenge the Republicans to say, where's your alternative? Um, and sitting back and reveling in dysfunction is fun, but it won't work in the end. Now, we can, we can revel a little bit. The, the website, I mean, what were they thinking? <laughs> Three years and they couldn't get a logon screen to work. My only hope is that the, the NSA shares the same programmers as uh, <laughs> Obamacare. But don't revel in this. You know, we can do this with paper. Medicare is a 1960s idea. Uh, um, if that's the only problem, well, people need insurance. We'll just fix it. Do it with paper. This fall, we saw the cancellation of individual insurance policies. This is a particular tragedy. Here were people who did the right thing. They bought insurance when they were young and healthy. Why? So that they would have the right to buy insurance later when they got sick. Uh, they have now been, you cannot think of a better nudge to get people like that to just leave the insurance system than to kick them out and then tell them, hey, and by the way, you can get it later if you get sick. Uh, but do not revel in that either. What's going to happen? You already saw it. Delay here, patch there, move them on the exchanges, give some more subsidies. Uh, people need insurance. What's the alternative? The next few years will, will be fun. <laughs> over and over again, we're going to see this, that we're on page two of a long, tragic Russian novel where everybody dies at the end. Uh, and I'll give you a little preview. I've, I've seen the outline. The individual mandate will surely fall apart uh, coming this spring. I mean, what do you want? $1,000 in tax or $10,000 of health insurance, given you can always get the health insurance later if you're sick. And anyway, the IRS has already told us it's not going to impose the tax. Really, is this government going to look at a guy who drives a truck, who earns $90,000 a year, and, be, and, and, and make him pay money, a fine, because he didn't buy $10,000 of health insurance? It's going to be for, uh, postponed. It's going to be delayed. And you can foresee the spiral that only sick people will be in the system. But don't revel in that. People need insurance. What's the alternative? This is only money. You know, pass some more subsidies, uh, help them out. There will be scandals. <clears throat> you have no reasonable expectation of privacy regarding any communication of data transmitted or stored on this information system. You might as well put all your personal information on your Facebook page as to enter it in healthcare.gov. There will be fraud. Um, uh, you know, the, the income is supposed to be linked to the, to the IRS. Now, um, they've already said, uh, we're not going to use that link. We trust you to tell us how much income you get for your subsidies. We trust you to tell us where you live, who you live with, how many kids you have, all the things that, that enter subsidies, of course. I was reading uh, the Cato News Summary this morning, which, of course, comes to my email, as it does to all of you, one of the many great things Cato does. Russell George, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration, warns that, quote, subsidies to help Americans buy insurance under the health care overhaul may be vulnerable to fraud. The IRS's existing fraud detection systems will not be capable of identifying ACA refund fraud or schemes. Yeah, duh, there will be fraud. But none of this will bring it down without an alternative. There's Medicare fraud already. There's disability fraud already. The income in, earned income tax credit is full of fraud already. There's rampant fraud with subsidies. What do we do about this? Without an alternative, nothing. People need to have health insurance. What's your alternative? It'll just mean exploding costs. Oh, the rich will pay for it. 
there'll be commissions to look into the fraud, to reform, and those commissions will do nothing, just as they have done nothing for all the other fraud we see. This is about voters getting checks. There's one thing our government is very good at, handing out checks to voters. This spring, the small businesses are, are, are going to discover <laughs> well, what happens to them, uh, and um, most likely win some exemptions or dump their uh, employees on the exchanges. Do not revel in this story of dysfunction. People need insurance. We'll fix it. It only takes a little bit of money. Then come the, the, the accountable care organization stories. This will be fun once the accountable care organizations, the new version of, uh, uh, of HMOs, uh, hit us when, when people find out they're not allowed to see their doctors. But people need insurance, and they just call up the newspapers and a sob story, and of course our Congress, oh yes, of course, you can see that doctor. We'll pay for it. It's just money. Your money, but it's just money. Where does all this go? Uh, many of my friends and, and sort of the lovers of freedom end <laughs> say this, this is a step to socialism. This is a step to single payer. I don't think so. Uh, I think it leads us to a place much darker. Why not, why not, not look at this, uh, uh, at this uh, act and think that it leads us exactly to where it says it's going to lead us? It leads us to a market where four or five large insurers carve up a market. They're regulated to the hilt, of course, but they're protected from competition. For example, California's exchange is already shut down. If you aren't, yeah, the, the insurance companies that are on there, they're saying no more insurity. insurance companies may even file to join this exchange until 2017 because we want to keep it simple for, the, for, for, the, uh, for people. <laughs> Wouldn't United Airlines love it if, uh, if, the, if the government said that? Um, will force the insurance companies to pay? Wait a minute. <laughs> you got four or five. They're the ones who are doing it. People need health care. They're already systemically important and too big to fail. And these, these large companies, of course, trade that for political support. Uh, you get protection from competition, you get your profits. Do what the regulator says or else. Uh, play along. Here's your fat subsidy. Step out of line. We have criminal prosecutions waiting for you. Uh, Jamie Dimon found out what happened when you talk about the insurers. The, the refrain of reading about Obamacare in the newspaper is dot, 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 said a source who did not want to be identified for fear of angering his regulator. No, this is not socialism. This is not single payer. There's no money in that. There's no political power in that. This system serves everyone much better. What's a word for it? Crony capitalism? I think there's darker words. This is a system invented in, in Germany and Italy in the 1920s, not, not in Russia. And we just took over healthcare and Dodd-Frank with this system. And it leads to what's already happening, striking illegality, ruled by executive order. We're, we're close to, you know, Congress is dysfunctional. We, we have to run by decree. But that will not stop it without an alternative. People need insurance. What's your alternative? Well, what is all the alternative? Let's, let's say it out loud. An essentially free market in health care and health insurance can work, can deliver high-quality care at much less cost, greater efficiency, solve all the pathologies uh, that we've seen in our regulatory system. There is no fundamental economic reason that health care and health insurance must be so heavily regulated or run by the government. What should insurance look like? Insurance should be individual, uh, portable across jobs and states, lifelong. When you buy it, you have the right to continue paying the same premiums that you paid when you're healthy if you get sick. And that right should be transferable to another company or portable to other states or if you get divorced or something of the sort. Insurance should be cat catastrophic with huge deductibles. Insurance is not there to protect your wealth, your health. Sorry, I got the, I got the joke wrong. 
Insurance is there to protect your wealth <laughs> against, the, against large shocks. It's not a payment plan. Your car insurance doesn't pay for oil changes. After, of course, your primary car insurance provider decides you need an oil change and you fill out the forms in triplicate and wait six weeks to get it and so forth. Your home insurance doesn't pay for getting the gutters cleaned. This solves pre-existing conditions. It solves the uninsured problem because such insurance is, of course, much, much cheaper. Well, why don't we have that? Is there something wrong with economics? No. People want that. Insurance companies want to sell it to them. Life insurance has most of these features. We don't have it because it's regulated out of existence. If you try to offer that product right now, you go to jail. It's just strictly illegal. If you want now, there's, you know, what about poor people, you say? Yes, yes, there's, we, we will need a system of charity care for truly poor people. But there's no reason health insurance for every single one of us has to be run by the federal government to help the truly poor. You want to subsidize old people, poor people, college students? You want to give people incentives for checkups or birth control or whatever they want? Fine. Give people vouchers, on-budget vouchers. It's plenty compassionate to say, Grandpa, here's 10 grand. Go buy yourself some insurance, not just we'll take care of everything for you. Now, people basically get this. Uh, and in our public debates, the, the, the idea that insurance should be insurance and should work this way is, is gaining currency. But health care is outrageously expensive, and the market is dysfunctional. Access to health care should be, I have a checkbook, you're a doctor, fix me. Nobody here really needs health insurance. If you're here and, and, and properly giving money to Cato, you have enough to pay a doctor as you have enough pay to pay your tax lawyer and your contractor and, and the other people who give you personal services. But if you walk into a hospital and say, I'm paying cash, oh, ka-ching, <laughs> uh, the prices they'll charge you are outrageous. And that's a sign of how dysfunctional this, this market is. Healthcare is just a personal service. It's like tax advice or for auto repair. Uh, why does it not work this way as every other market does? And look around us. Where, where does cost control come from? Uh, well, how did Southwest, Walmart, and Apple bring us such wonderful things at such low prices? Answer, relentless competition. Uh, South, Southwest displaced United. Uh, Walmart uh, displaced mom and pop. And Amazon's about to displace Walmart. Um, we, we didn't look to, the, the post office didn't invent email. That's where, this, that's, where, that's, where, that's where cost reduction and better services come from. Uh, now, why doesn't, you know, why is Southwest you go and you find out the prices and not in a hospital? Answer, the hospitals are tremendously protected from competition. Uh, our health, not just health insurance, our health care markets are divided up, uh, regulated, and protected from competition. As one, one example of thousands, uh, Illinois has certificate of need laws. If you want to just put in more hospital beds or buy a piece of equipment or do anything to expand, you have to go in front of a, a board of the state of Illinois. The board has to rule on whether this is a necessary expansion or new business. And your competitors may show up at this hearing and deny it because you are th a threat to their profits. I mean, imagine if United could demand a hearing where Southwest had to prove that it wouldn't be a threat to United's profits before it could go in and start offering services. How do we get there? Here's the trouble. A little bit won't help. The status quo won't help. Obamacare light won't help. There is a certain inevitable logic to Obamacare. It is the predictable patch to the failures of past regulations. There once was a little old lady who swallowed a fly. I thought she'd die, and then she swallowed a spider to catch the fly, and, a, and on and on and on and on. Simply saying, you know what, we'll stop at a dog won't hurt. You end up swallowing the horse. 
And she died, of course, in case you don't remember how the song goes. Now, where was the original sin? Where was swallowing the fly? Uh, Employer-provided group health insurance, which came in in, in the 1940s as a, as a way of helping companies to get around um, price controls. <laughs> One more patch to old regulations that puts in new regulations. And it didn't really matter back then because, you know, hospitals couldn't do that much for you and health insurance didn't, wasn't really that expensive. You couldn't get long-term chronic illnesses that, that people could do anything about. You got cancer, you die quickly, cheaply. Um, sorry. But, but now we live in a much better world where that system doesn't work. Now, think what happens when you have employer-provided group insurance as the basic system. If you're young and you think you might get a job someday, you have no reason at all to buy an individual plan, an individual plan that is portable across states that allows you lifetime insurance that guarantees your right to buy health insurance in the future. Why? At least in two or three years, even in today's economy, you're going to get a job with health insurance. There's just no point in signing up for the individual plan. That means the people who have individual plans are sick or old, so that means the prices go up. Once the prices go up, then the regulators get to mind and say, oh boy, this is terrible, there's a pre-existing conditions problem, what do we do about that? Well, we'll just force the insurance companies to, pay, to charge everyone the same rate. Well, now the healthy people don't buy insurance at all, so we say, oh, well, we'll, have to, we'll force the, the emergency rooms to take care of them. They have even less incentive to buy insurance. Insurance prices go up. They mandate more and more benefits for the insurance. They mandate more costs. And you can see we get stuck where we are. You're, you're not going to get out of this until you go back and undo the, the basic problem. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, we're the, the, the network of... Uh, of laws and regulations stopping the supply competition in the provision of health care, well, you got to go back to the basics and, and, uh, and, and get rid of that whole network. That's going to be difficult. We have to break the basic structure of not just Obamacare, but of the, the regulatory system that came before it. And it is not fundamentally different. It's just more cowbell, more of the same. Uh, Pat, you know, the same, the same thing that they did with Dodd-Frank. Well, the old regulatory system broke. We'll just pour more of the same regulation on. And there's an inevitable logic to that unless you go back and start. Break the link to the employer. Insurance is something you as an individual buy, and you take it with you through your life. Allow insurance companies to charge more for pre-existing care uh, conditions and uh, guarantee people who buy insurance uh, get guarantees um, that, that they won't have to pay more when that happens. Allow entry. Allow competition. This is politically hard. Uh, why do we not hear our, our leaders, many of whom, political leaders and intellectual leaders, many of whom understand this perfectly well, why do they not say it? It's politically hard. Uh, intellectual leaders want to be seen as relevant and, oh, you're just a free market wingnut. Uh, political leaders obviously don't want to stand up and say this, but they must, because without that, it, we're just going to head down the road that I, I told you before. It's hard to tell voters that insurance won't pay for small predictable expenses. Yeah, but it's not terribly hard. You just have to have the courage to say, wait a minute, and you will have so much more money because your insurance will be so much cheaper. You'll have the money to pay for those expenses, and you can get them where you want, and you'll have competitive suppliers trying to, to, to give them to you. Nobody likes deregulation. Hospitals, doctors, unions, big health insurance, government bureaucracies, politicians who dispense exemptions, everybody loves regulation. And of course, health policy wonks, 
my, my colleagues in economics who spend their life uh, uh, doing health policy stuff, if you've invested five years of your life really understanding the ACA and all the regulations and say, oh, we need to twiddle this and move that, you know, imagine what happens to you and your salary when, when that gets thrown out. Uh, and, and, you know, Chicago kept Walmart from selling food <laughs> within its uh, city limits for all these years. Uh, the barriers to letting it set up cheap clinics where people can pay cash uh, and, and get treated are just as big. Of course, who wins? The consumer. And, and who loses? So, it, you know, it's going to be politically hard. It's going to be technically hard. Uh, health, the provision of health care, as well as insurance, is restricted by a thicket of law and regulation, state and local, as well as federal. There's no magic bullet to, to get rid of this. Um, well, standing up and saying all that out loud takes political courage, but unless our political and intellectual leaders outside Cato are willing to stand up and say what is, I think, obvious to us all, no matter how dysfunctional, this system won't change. The Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty, named in honor of perhaps the greatest champion of liberty in the 20th century, is presented every two years to an individual who has made a significant contribution to advance human freedom. The prize will be presented on May 21, 2014 in New York City. For more information on the dinner and to purchase tickets, visit Cato.org slash Friedman Prize. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.